This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Draft Lab knows that quality and consistency are your brewery's top priorities. DraftLab provides easy-to-use sensory analysis tools designed to bring your tasting data into action. To start your free two-week trial today, visit DraftLab.com. That's D-R-A-U-G-H-T Lab.com. My name is Lindsay Barr, and I'm a sensory specialist at New Belgium Brewing Company and a co-founder of Draft Lab Sensory Software. I think that you really need to find the value of a sensory program from day one. The program doesn't exist to validate itself or to just train itself. The program needs to exist for a specific function. And I think the most important function, or at least the, the most risky thing that a brewery does, is, is release beer to the public to be consumed. Has your brewery put off building a sensory program because it seems overwhelming? This week on the show, Lindsay Barr is here with the tips and baby steps you need to make immediate progress. We also take a peek under the hood of the ASBC Sensory Subcommittee and hear about some of the awesome new tools they've produced. Whether your brewery needs to start from scratch or already has a functional sensory program, this interview with Lindsay is sure to help you take things to the next level. Talk about some of the real obstacles small brewers face, as well as some of the common misconceptions that get in the way of sensory at the smallest breweries? Having a sensory program doesn't really have to be terribly complicated, um, but a lot of the the kind of barriers that I have seen is, of course, time, um, cost, and low number of panelists. A lot of the, the breweries that exist right now have you know, three or four people that are running the entire show. And so you can't really run a statistically valid program um, with such low numbers. And of course, everybody is wearing many hats. So um, not one person has a lot of time to devote solely to the, the sensory program. So those are kind of the three main obstacles. There's also this misconception that it's very um, costly to run a sensory program that it's going to cost, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to devote to the sensory program. Um, But you can definitely do it on a a shoestring budget. Really, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is just make a decision based on flavor information. So um, sitting around a table and talking about the flavors of our beer is is a good place to start. And that doesn't really cost anything. That's something that we actually just do anyway. Yeah. Any other major obstacles that get in the way? Uh, the time thing, I think, is a really big deal. Um, a lot of breweries just really don't have a lot of time to devote to this. Um, and what I would say is just to go ahead and, and take an hour a week. Um, that 
can be just all, all it takes to just sit down, have a devoted time to really pick through the flavors of your beers um, with one another. At New Belgium, we run two panels a day, every day of the week, uh, which takes up about half of the half of every day. Um, that said, we have three sensory analysts in the lab that are kind of like supporting this program. And we have about 30 panelists that are supporting that program as well. Um, but it doesn't have to look like that. Um, one hour a week sitting down and just making that a, a devoted time to really pick apart the brands is um, enough to be able to make some decisions off of flavor data. You recently wrapped up a five-year run as chair of the ASBC Sensory Committee. We're going to be talking about some of the new tools that have been produced by that committee. But first, give us a quick snapshot of who that committee is and what it does. Yeah, so the Sensory Subcommittee is made up of a bunch of sensory analysts, specialists uh, throughout the brewing industry, but not actually just the brewing industry. We have a couple of sensory folks that are involved just in, in the in the greater sensory world as consultants or working for um, raw materials organizations um, or different suppliers. Sensory really touches every consumable product. Um, you know, we anything that is that we touch, taste, smell um, has usually has a sensory department that is supporting those products. So we have quite a few people that are actually just throughout the the industry, not necessarily in beer. Um, we have around 20 folks in the sensory subcommittee that um, devote some time to talking about the methods that they utilize and collaborating with one another to create methods that are specific for the brewing industry. So all of the methods that are in the sensory methods of analysis with the ASBC are all methods that exist widely in the sensory industry. They've just been adapted and adjusted to uh, really be specific for the brewing industry. So a lot of them have been pared down from, you know, these 30 page long documents to three pages and are really just very specific towards um, the brewing industry. The committee recently published a sensory QA production release method. This is meant to be sort of an easy final true to brand test that breweries of, of any size could use, right? Right. Yeah, that method was long overdue. And I'm a little embarrassed to say that it took us uh, five years to finally publish that method. Um, the methods of analysis as it stands now have a lot of really uh, pretty complex, complicated methods that are created for very specific purposes. And we, we uh, failed to put a method together that was just, how do I release my beer? Like, how do I make sure that the beer that is going out of the door is free of off flavors and uh, true to its brand intent? And um, so, we've, we finally created that. That was a collaboration with a few different um, medium-sized breweries in the industry. And um, we all kind of started talking about this and determined that we were more or less doing the same thing anyway, even though it wasn't necessarily documented anywhere. Um, so, we just put our heads together to publish and to document and publish a production release method. Um, and it is called uh, product release QA method. It seems like this would be a, a great place to start if you're, if you're developing a new program and you, you need to start small, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that you really need to find the value of a sensory program from day one. The program doesn't exist to validate itself or to just train itself. The program needs to exist for a specific function. And I think the most important function, or at least the the most risky thing that a brewery does is, is release beer to the public to be consumed. And if that beer is not... Um, what the brewer intended it to be, or if it has a, a defect, it can, you know, really mar the reputation of a brewery um, and have a, a major impact on sales. So I think the first thing that breweries should be focusing on is that production release. And it's really, you know, quite simple when it comes down to it. It's just, how do I know what I'm making? What is the target that I'm going after? Um, and then what are those normal limits of variation that I'm I'm okay with seeing in this product. And then how do I know that I am hitting that target over and over and over again as I produce the same beer um, under the same brand and release that to the market? I thought it was interesting in that in that method, you really talk about and you encourage people to use the true to brand nomenclature instead of sort of a, a no-go or you know go or no-go. Um, talk about that. I thought there was some interesting logic behind that. Yeah, that was really intentional. We... Um, are very sensory scientists are very careful in the language that we use because um, we know that that can really influence how a panelist sees the world and the kind of data that you're going to get your, from your panelist. So we're very intentional about using the kind of just neutral terminology like true to brand or true to target um, rather than go no go. Um, go no go assumes that the panelist is actually making a decision. And they can really get in their heads um, when they say no-go. They're thinking, okay, well, if I say no-go, then that means that we're not going to release this beer. And that means that we're going to dump this beer. And that means that we're not going to get a profit-sharing check. And that means that we're going under. And, you know, that's, that's you know, what we tend to do with our brains. So we just try to um, take out all of the decision-making from the panelist and just make it really simple. Like, you're, you're a trained person who knows what this brand is supposed to taste like. Is it that or is it not? Just very simple. Simply, um, this is what we're going for. Is it that or is it not? And if not, why? And then it's really up to the sensory analyst to determine um, what to do with that data. And we just don't want our panelists to assume that they are decision makers. They're just instruments that are giving us data. And they're, um, you know, one data point that we're going to look at more holistically when making a decision on um, what's going to happen, the disposition of that, that specific beer. Talk a little bit more about that. A panelist might find that a beer is true to brand in some respects, but not in others. Tell us why that matters. Yeah, so the full flavor profile of a beer isn't just, you know, the aroma or isn't just, you know, the holistic flavor and that's it. Um, it can be picked apart into its various sensory attributes, its modalities of uh, visual. So does it look like it should? Is the clarity correct? Is there foam? Um, is the color correct? So visually, is it is it what it should be um, aroma-wise? So orthonasally and retronasally, are you getting the attributes that make this brand uh, this brand? So if the, the main key attributes of a beer is its citrusy and grassy characteristics, and you're looking at the, you're looking for those in, you know, kind of a, a moderate magnitude, um, does the sample have those citrusy, grassy attributes in the proper intensity? 
So that's visual aroma. And then taste is you know, sweet, salty, sour, bitter, umami, metallic. You know, there's a couple of different tastes. Um, if a beer is supposed to be really bitter from the very beginning, that kind of dissipates into a moderate sweetness. Um, does this brand in front of you have that? Um, and then mouthfeel. So uh, is it properly carbonated? Is the acidity level proper? Um, is it you know, does the, the bitterness linger for too long? So the mouthfeel is another modality to kind of piece out. And then just kind of overall. So when you put those things together, is this brand recognizable as its itself? Um, so what you can do with that information when you break it down into those different modalities is you can really piece out, um, you know, it might not smell proper, but... Uh, the mouthfeel is right, the visual is fine, and uh, the taste is fine. So then what is it that's kind of like making this aroma a little bit out? Is it just that it's a little bit too citrusy or it's not citrusy enough that might, um, you know, beget a decision that is not so dire? Um, but if it is, you know, diacetyl or something that is causing this aroma to be out of spec, then that might actually be kind of a dumb situation. So it allows you to kind of like, A, understand the magnitude of the, the quote sensory fail. And it also helps you to be able to troubleshoot what is going on potentially with the process rather than just saying, um, yes, it's what it should be or no, it's not what it should be. If the answer is no, it's not what it should be. The next question should be why? and um, you know, that information should make us all better brewers. From the sensory scientist or analyst point of view, once you've got true to brand data from a panel, how do you utilize that data? Yeah, so once I have a, a, a solid target um, and then I have the information on whether or not the specific sample we're evaluating is true to that target, um, I, I can then use that information to troubleshoot our process, um, which is kind of where, where training comes in. If a panelist just says, no, this isn't true to target, but doesn't really give you any information as to why, um, it doesn't help you to make adjustments in your process. Um, so specifically with the production release method, really the next step when you see something that is a little bit off, um, then it's it's you have to ask yourself another series of questions. What is off and how am I going to answer that question? So I usually follow that up by using a couple of different methods that we may not have time to go into. But, um, you know, if, if, it, in, if panelists' comments indicate that the citrus level is a little bit too high, I might do a scaling method on the heels of that to see how high is the citrus level. Um, I might want to see if it is... Um, more age than it should be. And I'll, I'll do like more of a scaling kind of method to understand the intensity and the magnitude of the, those issues. But really the first step is to understand whether the sample is within the normal levels of variation. And um, we can do that by using just some really simple statistics. A lot of breweries don't really have enough panelists to gain statistical validity um, in these results. You know, we're just wor working with proportion data here. So, um, yes, no, is it that or is it not? And if you don't have about 10 panelists that are evaluating these beers, then you're 
if one person says that it's not true to target and you have two people on your panel, that doesn't mean that 50% of the, the public at large is going to recognize this as a defect. Um, so you really need more than two people to do stats. Um, but the general stats are just um, control charts. And you can see where you, you normally are and uh, whether or not the sample that you're tasting is has more percent defect, a greater percent defect than you would typically um, see. We kind of account for about 20% of our panelists just saying that a beer isn't true to brand um, on a day daily basis. And that's just the general noise that we're going to see. So um, if we see a significant amount more saying that it's off, then we have a real reason to react to that. Um, so that's that's how we would do the stats. Um, like I said, a lot of breweries don't really have enough people to um, run stats. So what's really useful is once everybody just does their normal evaluation to just sit around and, and talk about it. Like, okay, well, three of our five people said that this was a little bit high in citrus. Um, how are we going to adjust for that in the future? Um, are we going to react to this really... Um, are we going to react to this dramatically? Are we going to dump this? Or is this something that we're comfortable releasing? You know, at least capturing sensory information in a um, unbiased individual setting allows for discussions that wouldn't otherwise be had. Um, if you're just kind of sitting around and drinking a beer with your coworkers, you're not really picking it apart. Um, but if you're intentionally sitting down and picking it apart, um, it can spur on some discussions that would will ultimately kind of help progress the, the betterment of um, the brewery in general. Twenty uh, percent seems like a, a lot of noise when you talk about you know that that level of the staff uh, rejecting um, something that's true to brand. Is that just because you know um, you know Sally has a cold today and and Bob smoked a cigarette beforehand and and somebody's just not on? I mean, what's what's the what? How does how do you get that much noise in the process? Um, well, yeah. I mean, first of all, beer is is we have uh, we all have our different. Um, limitations. We all have our, our um, sensitivities to various attributes that might show up in beer. Um, and we all have our variance, var variable tolerance. Um, so Sally might be like really uh, not very tolerant of any kind of shifts in citrus flavor, but um, Bob kind of allows for a lot of citrus variation. And so we know that we have just inherent human to human variation. And um, that's that's a good thing. That means that, you know, where Sally is not doing so great, Bob can like pick up pick up the slack. <laughs> so um, having more panelists is, is always going to be better um, for the brewery. But yeah, that that 20% um, is either going to be caused by actual beer variation um, or by panelist variation. And we try to minimize panelist variation as much as possible um, through constant training and standardization of the sensory lab so that we are pretty sure that we're getting solid results from everyone. Um, but, you know, at, at the brewery, we know our, our panelists really well. Um, we know what they are sensitive to, uh, where their tolerance limits are. And so if I see, you know, Bob flagging for something every single day, I know that that's probably just variation in Bob. 
<laughs> and so I'll, I'll usually have just a conversation with him and um, try to get, get him back in line. Um, so yeah, I mean, 20% is actually kind of reasonable if you have a panel of um, 10 or more, um, in, in my experience at least. And you do want your panelists flagging things pretty constantly. Um, you, the last thing that you want is for panelists to just go into the into the booth and say, saying that everything is just fine, true to brand, pass, pass, pass. Um, you want them to really be picking apart your beers. Um, and then you can use that information however you please. Um, so if 50% of your panel says that the beer is too citrusy, you might not decide to dump the beer, um, but you'll probably want to um, go back and look at the process. So you want to encourage uh, your panelists to be, to be verbose and to be pretty critical. <laughs> All right, I like it. So uh, that's a good segue into you know obviously if you want to have as many people on the on the panel as possible, um, and you've talked about the importance of training. Uh, let's let's talk about sort of the the overhaul of Sensory Four that your group took on. Uh, why did you take that on? What did you want to accomplish there? Yeah, so a little bit of background. Um, Sensory Four was just a, a panelist training and selection method um, in the methods of analysis for the ASBC. And um, that is a really big method. And how it stood, um, it was written 15 or so years ago. Um, how it stood was basically just, you know, having panelists evaluate a couple of different levels of sweetness and bitterness and using that as a means of selecting your panel. Um, not many panels really do that. Um, and it's, in my opinion, it's really not that useful of information without having your panelists trained. Um, we like to give our panelists a decent amount of training before we determine whether or not they are uh, capable of having a seat on the panel. Um, so we decided to just go ahead and blow up that method and actually break it up into three different methods. Um, we originally started by just trying to modify what that method was, but it quickly became much bigger than we had intended it to be. So we broke it up into three different methods. Um, one of them is just branch description generation and evaluation. So one of the main functions of a sensory program is product development. So how do I um, generate a description for the brands that I'm making? And then how do I uh, evaluate those brands moving forward? Um, so given the fact that that is one of the primary functions of a sensory lab, how did we, how do we need to train our panelists specifically to generate descriptions for these brands and how to evaluate these brands? Um, so that, method goes a lot into just lexicon generation. How do you develop a panelist's language um, and really harness their ability to describe a beer in an accurate um, way? And then how do how do they how do we train them to evaluate a beer in the same manner uh, moving forward? So that's that method is specific towards um, lexicon development and um, evaluating beer. Coming up. Panelists just can't have decision-making power. <laughs> That's just what it comes down to. If you say that this isn't true to brand, if this is not on target, that does not mean that we're automatically going to open up the valve and send this to drain. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. 
This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Barnum Mechanical, a full-service design-build firm specializing in turnkey process and utility systems for the brewing industry. We partner with some of the best craft brewers in the U.S. to ensure the great beer they brew is what their customers get in every glass, bottle, can, or keg. You know beer. We know breweries. Additional support provided by... ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Rocky Mountain meets at Miller Coors in Golden, Colorado, October 25th. The first weekend in November is a real trilemma for vendor reps. District Mid-Atlantic meets at DC Brow. District Mid-South meets at New Realm in Atlanta. And District Southern California meets at Anheuser-Busch in Los Angeles. The following week is busy in Canada with the Ontario Craft Brewers Conference November 7th and 8th. And District Eastern Canada in in Montreal also on the 8th. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets November 8th at Bad Weather Brewing in St. Paul. Also on the 8th, District Northern California is at Urban Roots Brewing and Smokehouse in Sacramento. The brand new District Northern Illinois is holding its inaugural meeting at Goose Island in Chicago, November 9th. Or if you're on the East Coast, I bet my buddy John Clegg wants to buy you a beer at District New England's fall meeting at Sebago Brewing on the same day. Just when you thought November couldn't get any busier, there's a HACCP course and a district meeting in Ontario on November 13th and 14th, and districts Milwaukee and St. Louis both meet November 15th. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. What about establishing sensory techniques that will be used by the panelists? And to what extent does that come from the panelists themselves versus the person leading the program? Yeah. um, So the instructions that we give have to be very consistent as panel leaders um, with our panelists. Um, You know, analogous to running a a chemistry method, you don't want one chemist coming in one day and uh, preparing a sample differently than another chemist. Um, You're going to get completely different results. So we try to um, try to train our panelists to be consistent. Um, throughout both of our breweries. We have two breweries, one in Asheville and one in Fort Collins, and we actually have the same exact training regimen between the two breweries so that we know that we're getting um, the same information to to both of our panel groups. Um, So the method that our panelists use to even evaluate beer is uh, really crucial. Um, If one person just uh, guzzles a beer and uses that as their method of evaluation. The other one is, you know, smelling it in four different steps, then they're going to get different results. Um, so the first thing that we do is train p- panelists how to evaluate a beer. Um, and we also do that by breaking up each modality. So we train about what is the language around visual aspects of the beer? Um, what's the language around the aroma aspects? And what we've done in, in the brewing industry is, um, you know, we've been very analytical about how we evaluate for aroma and taste and mouthfeel and visual. Um, and that has produced a lot of, um, like, 
very jargony words that are, are sometimes hard to understand. And that's that's one of the things that um, makes starting a sensory program really intimidating is this, this lexicon that is really chemical-based. Um, and I think that that's a really great thing to be able to call out ethyl butyrate rather than uh, pineapple, for instance, or, um, you know, fruit juice, for instance. Um, but what we do is we start by having our panelists really start to hone in their skills on identifying what it is they're experiencing. And then we move from identifying what they're experiencing to developing their language to be a little bit more analytical. So we want to start with uh, fruit juice and calling that fruit juice. And then we hopefully are able to progress our panelist language to start calling out really specific chemical um, compounds because that's really where we can get to some solid troubleshooting. If we know that we're looking at an ethyl butyrate situation, um, we can we can troubleshoot that a lot easier than we can a fruit juice situation. Um, Fair so, enough. Yeah, that makes sense. It does. So uh, one thing I thought that was interesting is in the method you point out that, you know, a lot of people want to do visual first, but you really recommend moving that to the end. Why is that? Um, yeah, so we we actually just re recently started doing this at the brewery. Um, one of our sensory analysts, Ellie, just kind of asked the question, like, why do we look at the beer first um, if, if we know that it's kind of biasing? Um, we were seeing some like very subtle color issues or ch color derivations between the two breweries and one of our brands. And, um, and we thought that that was biasing our panelists to automatically call out other flavors that um, might have not been there. Um, so instead of having our panelists um, automatically assume what a beer is going to taste like by looking at it, we asked them to evaluate visual last. Um, you know, if you look at a a dark beer, you're going to assume that there's roasty, chocolatey, um, smoky aromas. And it actually might not be that at all. Um, there might not be anything that is remotely roasty. Uh, it's the same reason why we don't um, give our panelists a pineapple sriracha beer and call it this is a pineapple sriracha beer because we would assume that they would call out both pineapple and sriracha um, even when those attributes might not actually be there. So we basically want their unbiased feedback on the beer itself and um, visual can be uh, quite biasing and can lead to um, aroma evaluations that may not be consistent with what's actually going on in the beer. So we put visual last and um, we don't give a lot of brand information if it's going to be biasing, like in the case of like a pineapple sriracha beer. Yeah. And, and on a similar note, uh, in addition to bias, you talk about how in the method, how taste is often confused with other sensations in the mouth. And so the solution there is to have panelists plug their noses. Uh, I'll ask you the question that's in there. You know, a lot of people say, well, that's not how consumers drink beer. So why should panelists do that? Right. That's, that's a really good, uh, that's a really good call. Well, okay. Let me, let me address the, the taste thing. Um, I think there's a few things going on with um, the misappropriation of our language in, in the specific modality of taste, um, mostly just because our language, we talk about this tastes like this, um, when really we're saying it, it smells like that. Um, we're usually talking about aroma when we say it tastes like. Um, so our, our language, we just you know automatically assume that taste is, is flavor. Um, 
which I'm not going to change how we speak in our culture. So that's that's not something that I want to address. Um, but what we're trying to do in the sense, so so um, taste is used as flavor usually in our language, and our taste can actually be influenced by aroma. So if you are smelling vanilla. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the beer that you are tasting is sweet, but we tend to combine vanilla aroma with sweet taste, mostly because that's what we've seen. Van- vanilla is typically paired with cakes and cookies and ice creams, at least in the U.S. Um, so we're actually not getting an accurate read on the level of sweetness of the beer if we're smelling aroma and allowing for that to influence the intensity of taste. Um, So our main function as a sensory panel is to, you know, alert to various process deviations um, and also to, you know, help in product development and troubleshoot and that kind of thing. Um, So we don't necessarily have to be drinking consistent with how a consumer drinks um, because we're really trying to use our fine tooth comb to detect even the smallest deviations in our process so that we can go back and um, kind of fix those before a consumer notices. Um, So, of course, panel data, like that's why that's why I say not every single panel fail needs to result in a dump, because a lot of times what we're seeing might not have any kind of uh, consumer impact. Um, And we might decide to go ahead and release that beer, but we'll go back and look at our process to see if we can be a little bit more consistent and a little bit better. That makes so much so much sense. I've been unfortunately been a part of so many panels, you know, years ago where, you know, the the idea was, okay, everybody here has a power has the power to to, you know, to to pump the brakes on this right now. And of course, like you said, nobody wants to to be the one who makes that call knowing the the ramifications of that. And, you know, I I think you you just don't get the same results. Yeah, exactly. Um, Panelists just can't have decision-making power. (laughs) That's just what it comes down to. And we tell our panelists that, like, you know, if you say that this isn't true to brand, if this is not on target, that does not mean that we're automatically going to open up the valve and send this to drain. Um, We're going to do our due diligence. We're going to um, understand what kind of consumer impact this may or may not have. And we have reams and reams of data um, that kind of show if if something is going to have an impact on consumers. So, um, yeah, the decision-making power needs to really be with um, the, the sensory department and, um, you know, the brewing team. Yeah, and another important uh, point that the method brings up, too, is in, in regards to, to bias, too, is just, um, you know, making sure that people aren't making, shooting each other expressions and, you know, glances and facial expressions. I mean, that's a kind of a, an obvious thing, but that's something that, you know, is going to have a big influence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, as best as possible, the first thing that our panels need to do is um, put in their own individual unbiased evaluation um, in into the beer, and um, any way that they they can do that is encouraged. So you know, the, the booth setting is absolutely ideal. Um, but a lot of small breweries don't have the space and don't have the the money to be able to you know put in booths. So I'm I'm all about the round table because a round table is 
just a shape. <laughs> um, but, you know, the round table has gotten a really bad name because it, it usually means that everybody is influencing one another. And there's this, you know, kind of like halo effect going on. And you can sit at a round table, do your individual evaluation and try to, you know, just respect one another's evaluation. And then you can come together and have a discussion about it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all about uh, putting on that, that poker face so that you can get really individual results and uh, have every panelist's uh, voice heard in, in the evaluation. And that really just comes down to uh, respecting the process and respecting your individual panelists, even if you're evaluating um, in the same room. There just have to be norms in the sensory lab. Uh, the sensory lab can be the bar before you open, and it can be at a round table. Um, but there just have to be some some norms around you know, not talking to one another, not influencing Influencing one another's um, evaluation, and um, you know, taking as many measures as possible to keep that bias as, as low as possible. I noticed the method points out that the number of years someone's worked in a brewery really has nothing to do with their sensory abilities. Talk about that. That's absolutely true. Um, we're constantly recruiting new panelists in our lab, and they—they're really the lifeblood. Um, We—it's really great to have panelists that have been around for 15 years, um, if so long as they are continuously keeping up on on training, and so long as they're continuously engaged. But really, you just need your panelists to be invested in the product that you're making. I mean, luckily, we're not making cat food, and we're, we're making beer, so it's really easy to be passionate about it and to be invested in the outcome of the product. Um, but so long as your panelists are just engaged in what they're doing and willing to learn and um, able to be kind of humble throughout the process, they're, they're going to give you some really good data. And so actually, like some of our newest panelists are actually some of the best. Um, They've not really been trained to look at beer in, in one way. Um, you know, after you've been doing this for a while, you kind of can get a bit of a rigid mindset about what beer flavor is. Um, but new panelists will come in with a totally new set of eyes. Um, and like through their lens, they're able to, to add descriptors to the conversation that are maybe completely new to the panel in general. And um, yeah, we, we, we tend to get really pigeonholed in our, our own language. Um, a few years ago, we started making cider. Um, at the brewery and um, a lot of our our beer panelists had the hardest time coming up with descriptors that were just a little bit further from like appley <laughs> um, <laughs> so <laughs> what we did is we recruited totally new panelists that um, didn't have a language that was just bu built on beer and they were able to give us a much clearer lens on um, what we were producing in another category um, so we always have um, new panelists Panelists coming in, and they definitely add a lot to the story, and sometimes are um, the most enthusiastic and uh, best panelists. That's cool. I can't stop thinking about how glad I am that I don't have to be on a sensory panel for cat food. So, right? Isn't it great? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's move on and talk about um, sort of another uh, another part of sensory four that's new, and that's the the training method for descriptive analysis. Tell us about what that is. Yeah, so um, descriptive analysis is a, a really pretty advanced technique. It's a technique really used to um, 
identify the, the, well, to quantify the, the rate and the intensity of each attribute in a sample. Um, and if your panelists don't really understand the attributes that are already in the sample, um, it's really not possible to get consistent data on the intensity of those attributes. So, uh, descriptive analysis is really a, a method that I don't encourage a lot of breweries to use, especially right away, um, especially because you're using scaling data. And if you don't have 10-ish people that are sitting on your panel, you're going to get a lot of noise. Um, you know, if somebody rates something at a 10 and the other person rates something at a, a 1, um, do you, are you going to average that data and really say that the intensity is around a 5? Like, no, that's not solid data. Um, so I. Um, the descriptive analysis method, training method, talks a lot about that. A lot of the, the pitfalls um, that I've seen breweries get into by just jumping straight into using scaled data. Um, but it also gives you a, a good idea of how to execute this properly. Um, so we go through panelist selection. It usually requires, um, you know, really... Um, highly trained panelists, about you know, fifteen-ish is is typical, um, and and they need to have a decent amount of training. Um, so one of the reasons why descriptive analysis is a difficult technique to apply is it requires a lot of training. Um, we say, or the literature says, around five-ish hours per project um, should should be applied for training. Um, some studies even suggest that uh, training benefit peaks around 60 hours, and I can guarantee you no brewery is training their panelists for 60 hours. Um, so we go through uh, training on how to both identify different attributes and how to get alignment on scale use. Um, so we do that pretty uh, publicly at the brewery, we uh, give panelists various attributes and and tell them basically how what the intensity is to try to uh, maintain some kind of calibration, um, and then we have them go on about and um, scale different attributes. How we apply this at the brewery is really just for troubleshooting. Um, so our first step is to do that production release method. So here's Here's the target. Is it that or is it not in visual aroma, taste, mouthfeel, and overall? And then if the answer is no, it's not that, then we'll do some descriptive analysis. So if I have an indication that citrusy is too high, then I will um, you know, throw citrusy in the mix of various attributes that the panelist is then asked to scale. Um, so we don't use this for a quality assurance technique. We'll usually use this for um, troubleshooting and maybe some brand development um, if intensity information is required. All right. How about um, let's get into that sort of that third and final part of Sensory 4. Uh, so that's going to be the training method that's QA and production focused. Talk about that. This is what you would typically call attribute training. Most people are pretty familiar with attribute training. Um, Essentially, you're just going to spike known levels of uh, various food grade standards um, into beer that could potentially arise throughout the process. And this information gives the sensory analysts the ability to uh, go back and troubleshoot the process. So if your panelists are trained on diastole and they know what it is and they can call it out, um, it's, it's useful for the program so that you know 
you know if you see diacetyl that it really is diacetyl um, and you know how to to go back in the process and and fix that so really every attribute that we train on has some kind of a root cause and kind of has an action tied to it so that we can go back in the sensory department and um, talk with our our brewing team and um, maybe suggest some various changes or call out something that may have happened in process that should be addressed um, so this method goes through uh, attribute recognition how to how to spike beers um, how to uh, track panelists progression how to report on their performance and um, it suggests some targets that panelists should be working towards um, to improve their attribute recognition um, and I'm kind of glad that you ended with asking about this method um, because this is actually a, a method that a lot of breweries are are using um, and maybe using even too intensely this is like you know the only way that panelists are trained um, but it really gives you a good idea of how how to identify defects but this doesn't really help you develop a language that is going to help brewing uh, develop new products. So if we are only focused on attribute recognition, the targets that we're going to come up with are going to be riddled with uh, jargon and um, maybe even defects if that's the language that they've been taught to use. So we also need to balance this out with um, using analogy as um, part of their language development so that they can create descriptions for IPAs that are um, not necessarily saying like ethyl butyrate with a little bit of T2N and uh, a slight amount of ethyl exonoate. You know, you want your panelists to say uh, there's, you know, strong amounts of floral aroma followed by citrusy, uh, orange peel, and guava juice. Like that, that's more of a a useful brand target than just uh, chemical attributes. So this has to really be paired with that first method that we talked about for uh, training uh, with the intent of brand description and evaluation. Your method also helps people understand what they should do with the data, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, we go through, and it's a, it's a pretty short method. It's still like seven pages, so you can't go through too much in seven pages. Um, but it gives a good idea of how do you how do you report on panels performance, um, and how do you just manage the the data that you're going to get. Um, it's really not enough for a panelist to say, "I've seen at diacetyl, and therefore I know what diacetyl is." Um, until you're actually tracking your panelist data. Um, you can't you can't really utilize that information that they're going to be giving you. Uh, for example, if you've spiked diacetyl ten times and someone has seen it ten times but they've never gotten it correct, and then they say diacetyl on panel, you're probably not going to want to use that information. You're going to want to take it with a big grain of salt. Um, so really, that attribute data isn't really that useful on in the panel setting unless you. Are tracking it unless you know what your panelists are capable of of smelling and what they're not capable of of smelling. Um, so yeah, it goes through how to how to collect some data, how to store that data, um, and then how to um, communicate that to your panelists. One thing I, I didn't ask that I wanted to um, in regards to the uh, True Brands um, test, how do you how do you deal with that? when it comes to new brands because all you know so many breweries are constantly releasing new brands uh how do you approach true to brand for something that's brand new 
That's a really good question. And it, it requires a, a different test altogether because there really isn't a brand that's established. Um, and we're, you know, New Belgium is in the same boat. We're creating a lot of different beers um, all of the time. And sometimes we'll see a brand once or twice. And so asking the true to brand question isn't really um, that useful. Um, so we actually just kind of changed the terminology. Um, what we do is we uh, sit down with the, the brewers, um, whoever is creating this beer, and we just ask them to, when they're developing the recipe, to write down what their intent is. So why are you adding caramel malt and saws hops? You're probably looking for a little bit of a darker color and some residual sugar and sweetness. And you're looking for like a spicy noble character. Boom. You just wrote a brand description based on what you are using um, to develop that recipe. Um, so we ask them to generate a target based on what they're going for. Um, and then we have our panelists evaluate the beer without having the target in front of them. Just unbiased. Here's a beer. What what does it smell like? What does it taste like? What does it feel like? What does it look like? Um, and then they, they're able to evaluate that, the, the beer unbiased. And then they're given that target description at the end and are told, you know, this is what the brewer was going for. Did they achieve that or not? Um, so it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a different take on the true to brand test, the true to target test um, by basically having panelists generate a description without any information about the beer. And then you can compare that description um, to what the brewer intended and uh, see whether or not they hit it. And then how quickly, how quickly can you transition that to a treater brand? I mean, do you say, okay, we've brewed this three times now and evaluated three times. Now we're going to do, now we're going to say it's treater brand or how, how, how fast does that work? Yeah, I think, I think we should always allow for a little bit of a dial in period when we're scaling up a brand. Um, so it's, it can be difficult to go from a brewer's intent to uh, a perfect scale up on the first try. Um, so we need to allow for a little bit of tweaking to happen. So we would do that method, um, just the a describe method. Um, if you're if you're using draft lab, it's just called the describe method. Um, if you're using you would use that method probably about like you said about three times or until you really think that you have dialed in um, what that brand is going to be at full scale. Um, and then you can lock that description in and then start asking the question of whether or not um, the subsequent samples are true to that that brand. Um, so yeah, I think you need a little bit of time to, to A, dial it in for your panelists to understand that brand um, and to generate a description that allows for a certain amount of variability um, in the process. Okay, great. In addition to the overhaul of Sensory 4, the um, Sensory Subcommittee published a couple of methods for evaluation of raw materials. Tell us about those. Yeah, I'm really proud of these methods. Um, it's We, first of all, had to come up with a way of validating that these methods are repeatable and sensitive. Um, so the, the first method that we... Um, that we publish was is called the hot steep method. And that is a, a malt sensory method. Um, Cassie from Breeze was really integral in creating this method. And um, we did a lot of beta testing at New Belgium. And uh, my friend uh, Andrea at Valley Malt also did a lot of beta testing, um, Anna as well. 
on my island, did a lot of beta testing. And we, we just tried to dial in what this method would look like and um, how we could do this repeatably. So uh, a few years ago, we validated that this method is both repeatable and sensitive, meaning that if two different sensory analysts prepared the wart for this method that you would get the same results. Um, so that's, it's repeatable. And then is it sensitive? So we would take two malts that have just very little differences um, between them. And is the, is the method sensitive enough to where panelists can detect those differences when um, the malt flavor is extracted in a certain way? Um, so the hot steep method is was really created with malt sensory in mind. Um, it's different from the Congress in in that it um, you get a, a wort that's about a five Play-Doh. Um, with Congress, it's much sweeter. And the Congress, you're really just trying to uh, understand what is the maximum um, extract that you can get from that sample. This was created with just with sensory in mind, the, yeah. Yeah, with yeah. sensory in mind, yeah. yeah. So, and we have, and uh, I'll encourage listeners that want to learn more about that to listen to episode 42 because we did talk about that a bit with Cassie. And it's a um, really interesting and very practical method that I've used recently. And um, it, it really is powerful. So, so you had the hot steep method for malt, but then you also have a, um, a raw materials uh, method that's new uh, for hops. Tell, tell us about that one. Yeah, so this one's new. This is called the the hop grind method. Um, it was developed by Tim Kosleski uh, at Haas a few years, many years ago. Um, and it's really simple. It's almost kind of like comical how simple it is. You basically grind hops <laughs> and you put them in a jar and you smell them. Um, but we wanted to be as uh, thorough as possible in in um, calling this an ASBC validated method. So we did the same kind of uh, testing to make sure that it was both repeatable and sensitive. What we found is that it is um, a more sensitive method for whole cone hops than it is for pellets. Um, so with pellets, you can absolutely use it to to determine differences between varieties, but you're probably not going to be able to like piece out um, uh, nuances within a variety. And um, if you use cones, you can do that. Uh, so this method is um, going to be published. I don't think it's yet on the MOA, um, but it will be published very soon. Um, it's simply, you know, you grind up hot material, put it in a really tight sealed jar, and um, you smell it, and you can uh, detect various aroma attributes. So um, I've been using that for a while, um, and the the industry has really been using that method for a while. And finally, we just put some uh, robust testing around it and published it as an official method um, recently. <laughs> That was Lindsay Barr here on the Master Brewers Podcast. By the way, Lindsay developed a great free app that your team can use to build brand descriptions for your beers right from your smartphone. See how it works at DraftLab.com or by clicking the DraftLab logo in the show notes. Hey, remember the Belgian beer book that Sten Mertens and Jan Stensels talked about on episode 101, The Yeasts of Tomorrow? Well, great news. It's now available in the Master Brewers bookstore. Just go to mbaa.com slash store and type Belgian beer into the search bar to get your copy today. Just like that one day.